last week we looked at uh, the waters of Meribah uh, and both of the different accounts there, how the people of Israel were in the wilderness. And so we, we uh, a few weeks ago, a few weeks before that, uh, we looked at how they came out of Egypt. In between, we looked at the manna that they asked for. So, so the Israelites are in the wilderness, and it's only been three months. If we go back here to Exodus 19, um, verse 1, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So let's keep that in mind as we get started today. It's only been three months since they've left Egypt, and it's only been three weeks since we've, you know, went, since we've covered that. So, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't very much time at all, and uh, God begins to institute his covenant with them. Um, now, this covenant, as the book of Galatians makes clear, does not set aside the covenant that God made with Abraham. But this covenant that we uh, see the beginning of the initiation of in, in chapter 20, this is the Mosaic covenant, and it's a very significant piece of scripture. If we don't understand the Mosaic covenant, then we don't understand the full Old Covenant. And if we don't understand the Old Covenant, we won't understand the New, because the New is a better covenant and an adaptation, uh, a transformation of the Old Covenant into what uh, God was wanting to do through his son, Jesus. But um, as we look this morning, we're going to learn some things in the Bible, um, some things that are really important for us to get right. You know, so many people are running around with an improper interpretation of not only the minor and major prophets of the Old Testament, but also specifically, most importantly, the book of Revelation. And that book is probably along with um, maybe Hebrews, is the most misunderstood book in the New Testament because Revelation, more than any other book, relies on the language and, and economy of books that come before it. And we're going to see that, and, and you won't believe that for probably years because I didn't believe it for years when I first heard it. And I'm just now beginning to fully understand what somebody who told me that m meant when, when they said that. And um, we're going to look today at biblical language and symbolism and how that works and why we have to know uh, what the Bi how the Bible communicates in order to understand the Bible. We're going to look at uh, these symbols that are used to start to describe the sanctuary and why the sanctuary is important. And uh, we're going to look at how um, we've been talking about this idea of ecclesiology, that is, who we are as the church and where we came from and what we're doing and why we even have the, the first you know, half of the Bible, which is actually way more than half of the Bible, the first chunk called the Old Testament. Why as Christians didn't we just lob that off and cut our Bibles you know, it would have been way easier to get through your Bible in a year, but it's probably uh, important that we have that first part. We're going to look at the use of positive and negative symbols, um, how, how it is that we can see a need for Christ even when there's not a good example of Christ. We're going to look at what the purpose and use of the law is. It's not our belief. It's not the majority Christian opinion that the law is pointless now that we're under grace but that the law has a specific purpose. And then finally, we're going to look really clearly just by reading something from Hebrews. What is the new covenant and why is it a better covenant? So the Bible, as you know, is written in, in text. It's not a video. It's not a song, although there's songs in it. You can't uh, put it on your iPod 
and hit play and listen to it unless you have somebody reading it to you. It's not, uh, it's not a movie. It's not an animated GIF, uh, as funny as those may be. But this Bible that we have, this book that we read from, its primary economy, the way that it can communicate, is through its word choice and through word repetition. The quality and richness and texture of a word, uh, it, that is one way that it can communicate. But another way that it communicates is based on its repetition. That is, when Jesus is telling something that is true and important, not just extremely true, because something's either true or false, when he's saying something that's true and important, Jesus says, truly, truly, or if you're reading in the King James, verily, verily, I saith to thee. And so Jesus uses repetition there. Yahweh, in dealing with his people, uses repetition in the events and details of those events. And we're going to see how that is uh, re really laid out in this, in this uh, passage here. But any word or passage or phrase that, that you see highlighted and used again, that word is being used in the context of how it was used over and over again. So if you don't understand Genesis 1, you cannot understand Genesis 2. And if you can't understand Genesis 1 and 2, you cannot understand Genesis 3. And it gets worse from there. Uh, not better. And so you can't understand Revelation unless you understand Exodus. And there's a really significant reason for that. And those who understand where I'm going with the book of Revelation probably know what I'm going to talk about. But you can't understand Revelation until you read Exodus. And it's our opinion as Christians that we believe that the New Covenant, and specifically the writings of the New Testament, which clearly reveal the person and work of Jesus, are the full understanding and expression of what the Old Testament meant. And so it's not that you can just read the Bible from one way, from Genesis to Revelation, but once you get to Revelation, you need to bounce back and start reading back towards Genesis again, because you will not understand what Moses was talking about when he was having those encounters with Yahweh in his glory on the mountain. So let's get into this. Um, I hope to prove this through this idea of the sanctuary. We in this church have a very nice sanctuary. It's a red carpet, red pew, wood panel, nice wood panels. And this is, um, this is very reminiscent maybe of what the tabernacle might have looked like. There were some wood panels. Now we don't have the altar or anything like that, but um, it, you know, there were, the, the tabernacle had, you know, it was just, it was kind of, you know, it was movable. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a palace. It was, it was stuff that was done by hand, nice stuff, but it was still, um, it was still small. And, um, but the tabernacle Moses built according to what he saw on the mountain. And what he saw on the mountain is really important for us to get. So again, the people of God have left Egypt and it's been three months since they've left. Uh, so if you can imagine January, February, March, it's March 31st, all the basketball is over and they are here. And Moses is just getting ready to, to, to move with the people forward and God calls him up to the mountain. So Yahweh brings Moses up to an encounter and he, Moses encounters his glory and his presence, right? And in the midst of this encounter, he's, he's absolutely terrified. Uh, he sees what some heavenly things are. And this is what I mean when I say you cannot understand Revelation until you understand Exodus. Let's look at some of the specific things. In Exodus 19, verse 16, it says, So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, 
so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now, it, no one's blowing the trumpet. Uh, Yahweh himself is, is making that trumpet sound. Um, verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Now, I was in an earthquake once, and by that I mean I was in Ohio, and there was an earthquake in North Carolina. And it was like a 5.2 magnitude earthquake in North Carolina, and I was terrified. I was on the fourth floor of an old brick building, and there was some earthquake literally seven to 800 miles away, and I was scared out of my mind. That's not an earthquake. This, this is a mountain quake. I mean, the mountain is trembling as God's presence approaches it's just it's buckling from the pressure that Yahweh's uh, presence has and and it can't deal with it can't uphold it it's like if you put something if you drop like a, a an iron weight into water water quakes as that iron comes and falls through it that's what's happening with the mountain Yahweh is coming and it's 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 liquefying it's uh get, it's getting messed up because God's uh, bigness is coming around it and so here this mountain is trembling at the presence of, of Yahweh. Verse 19, When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered with thunder. Now that's, that's really important that we get that. Now today, this morning, we sang a song called uh, Revelation Song from a church called Gateway Worship. It's a great song, and it covers really some things that happened to John the Revelator in, in the book of Revelation chapters 4 and 5 specifically. We're going to read that. Revelation 4, 2 through 5. Immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, the one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne, there were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and crown and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. That describes the heavenly sanctuary. And what we just saw in Exodus 19 and what we're going to see in Exodus 20 is that Moses and the people of God are having an encounter at the sanctuary, the place where Yahweh in, at Mount uh, Mount Sinai has decided to come down and show them a glimpse of heaven. And it's terrifying. Um, some of the key highlights that we see here, peals of thunder. I was in a thunderstorm driving home on Thursday. No, it was Friday. And I stopped because it was so terrifying, the sounds of thunder. I was also very tired. But I pulled off the road and stopped for 15 minutes until in you know until the, the storm passed because it was terrifying and I thought I was going to get in a car accident. That's what happens when thunder, you know, comes around us. We're weak little tiny people, and when we hear these giant thunderstorms, we tremble. And the reason we tremble is because God set it up that way so that He could communicate His glory and majesty. Not only are there peals of thunder, there are flashes of lightning. So this is not only audio; it's also visual. In case you know you want that kind of stimulation, there's thick clouds of smoke. People are getting lost in the in the. They don't know where they are. Uh, there's an emerald rainbow in Revelation four. An emerald ra a rainbow happens when um, when there's 
light going through water vapor. And so it's very similar that if there's a bunch of clouds and a bunch of smoke, this is a very similar scene. There's earthquakes and shaking in both, in both, uh, settings. There's a fire of a furnace in, in, uh, in Mount Sinai. And in the other example here that, that the revelator John sees, he sees seven lamps burning, which are the seven spirits of God. Um, Ezekiel one, which we won't fully get into today. He sees this whirlwind of fire and wherever the spirit would move, these winged creatures would move. And, and there was fire in the midst of and around the creatures. I mean, this is terrifying. I don't like seeing horror movies, and I don't think I would like to see this. This is scary. I mean, you are going to be consumed if you come near this thing. Not only are there the fires of a furnace, there's also the sound of a trumpet. Let's look at some more. Exodus 24.10, Moses and Aaron are told to bring up the elders, and they're going to go eat a covenant-initiating meal with Yahweh. And this is describing what the elders and Moses and uh, this is Nadab, Abihu, Aaron, Moses, and 70 other elders. In Exodus 24, verse 10, it says, And they saw the God of Israel under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapsus lazuli. Uh, another other translation says sapphire, blue sapphires, not red ones, uh, as bright blue as the sky. In Ezekiel 1, when Ezekiel is sitting by the river, river Kebar, he has an encounter where the heavens are open to him, and he sees a very similar thing. Ezekiel one twenty six. Now above that expanse was over their heads, that is the, the living creatures, there was something resembling like a throne, like laps, lapis lazuli in appearance, and on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Ezekiel is starting to see glimpses of in glory, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Revelation 4, 3, And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone. A jasper stone is a, a, it's a, it's a stone that's kind of red and orange at the same time. And a sardius stone, a sardius stone is just really bright red. It's not like a ruby in that rubies you can kind of see through. Sardiuses are more like, um, like a bright red sandstone or something like that. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. This is a terrifying sight. But what I want you to see here is that the pictures of the sanctuary and, and who is in that sanctuary are built on top of one another. And if you think Revelation 4 and 5 are dependent on Exodus, the rest of the book's dependent on the rest of the Bible. And so we should be careful as we start to go into Revelation and just kind of make these assumptions about what it means when it uses this particular symbol. There's really specific and biblical ways to determine what Revelation is talking about when it uses symbols. So anyway, sanctuary symbols. In Exodus 20, 22 through 23, this is the really key connector to this idea that, that what Moses and the people are seeing from heaven is really heaven. In Exodus 20, verse 22 through 23, says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. Now this is where the, uh, the mixture of this idea that the symbols about the sanctuary and the words about the sanctuary are used in different places in the scriptures. So also we as the church come out of 
we're an outworking of the people of God on the earth. That is, we're a succession of what God intended Israel to be. And um, according to the New Testament, uh, all who are really of Israel are the ones who have faith, just like Abraham had. And so we see the same thing happening with the sanctuary that happens and describes the people of God. In Exodus 19.6, Yahweh says to this people that he brought up out of slavery, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And then and then Yahweh goes to give uh, the, the commandments. So God tells Moses that these people are going to be a special people, and they're going to be for his purposes, and he's going to do what he wants with them and glorify uh, his name, and at the same time, bring a blessing to all the nations through them. And that's really awesome. And um, we're, we're spoken about in the New Testament as a very, very similar idea, literally the same phrase. If you remember from our First Peter series, if you happen to be with us, we, we looked at First Peter 2, 9 through 10. That was actually a talk that we gave for two weeks. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but you have received mercy. Parenthetically, we're not going to get into it today, but it's actually the case that the people of God received grace before they received the law. That is, they were brought up out of Egypt before they were told to obey. So it is with us. We are delivered by Christ from our addictions to sin and lifestyles of sin, and then we are given his commands to come and obey him. Not only does First Peter use this language, but uh, let's examine who Peter's writing to. Remember at, at the start of First Peter, we said First Peter's writing to these aliens, and th- these aren't the UFO aliens. These are the aliens who are believers Jews and Gentiles who are spread across all of all of Asia. He says, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and, and those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. He's saying Peter's writing to not only these Christians who were going to receive his physical copy of that letter, but also those who would get other copies. That is us. So Peter is writing to us. He's writing to the, the, the new covenant church, and he's calling us the same thing that Moses was told to, to call the people of God by, by God himself. Not only does Peter say this, but also John the Revelator has a very similar phrase in, in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And the elders and the living creatures sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So so John the Revelator is seeing this eternal scene, and in the midst of the worship that's going around Yahweh, they're worshiping him because he has made a kingdom of priests from all the tribes of the world. So we know concretely that the phrase kingdom and priests talks about the people of God as Israel in Exodus 19 and 20, but it was not intended to stay there and it has not stayed there. It is now the church, which is throughout the whole world. Now that's really awesome. 
so who's writing? Who is John writing to again? Uh, again, he tells us he's writing to the seven churches in Asia, and uh, then he goes on to to deliver his letter. So, so John is not writing to the Hebrew churches alone in Israel. He's writing to the Greek churches that are that are spread out throughout Asia. Now, this is a really awesome idea. If you've never heard it, it means that we are loved by God and that He wants uh, the best for us, and that the Old Testament matters. Um, but why is this a, this is a great idea, but this is also at the same time, a really bad idea. And why is it a really bad idea? Well, it's a bad idea because now we know that we're like Israel and we know that Israel falls a lot. And so we should expect that we would be just like them, uh, in falling. This is terrible news because God is holy. In Exodus 19, 7 through 8, it says, So Moses came and called the elders and set before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And that is, if you, if you understand the sinful heart of man, you understand that they are completely wrong. They're not going to do it. Uh, in less than 40 days from saying they're going to do it, Less than one-third of the time since they've been taken out of Egypt, they're going to be building idols with the gold that, remember, it may not have seemed important at the time when we highlighted that they brought gold out of Egypt with them, but they're going to take the gold which God blessed them with, and they're going to use it to make an idol. That's what happens to the people of God in this situation. So, so it's terrifying news for us that we're just like the people of Israel. In less time that the, than they had, uh, in less than the time since they had been taken out of Egypt, the people of Israel have already wandered in their hearts. They're beginning to form idols, and the problem with us as the church being the successor to the people of Israel is that God is jealous, and He will not share us with idols, and you may think, I don't bow down at a, an idol made of gold, but there are idols of the heart and there are idols of, of sin, which we, you and I have both bowed down at. Now, last week we talked about 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5, and we were going to talk about verses 1 through 17. So we're just gonna, I'm just going to read through uh, that, that second half of that passage that we didn't get to. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 10. Paul, speaking about what happened in the wilderness with the Israelites, describing why it has meaning for the Corinthian church, who uh, were, were Gentiles, not Jews, but rather, but still are the people of God through faith in Jesus. Verse 6, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That just means they were lethargic in, in what they were doing in terms of communion, eating and drinking, but they were really attentive. They stood up. They, it, it caught their attention when it was time to go do something sinful. Verse 8, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. It's very depressing that we are uh, an extension of the people of Israel in that we're prone to sin. And the law has meaning for us because it is an instruction for the people of God. And the law is used as, for a specific use. But Paul here in this, uh, in this event of describing uh, or, or in describing these events, Paul is saying this has meaning for, for us. This isn't, we can't just dismiss the book of Exodus. <clears throat> so he comes to a conclusion in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You, you judge what I say. It is not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ. It is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of one bread. What it means by verse 16 is, is just when we come and eat and drink communion, by, by, by taking that blood and that body, which our Lord and Savior gave up for our redemption, by taking that, uh, upon our, by taking that in and, and extending our hand to receive that, we say we have some guilt in, in the reason why he died. That's, that's what it means uh, when Paul says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. That means we share in the blood of Christ in that we not only receive it, but we are also are part of the reason that he died. Uh, same for his body. So you may have been thinking, where is Christ in all of this? We haven't really talked about a symbol or a type of Christ. Well, we saw last week how Moses' unrighteous anger showed us that we need we need someone who is a greater Moses. We need someone who is greater than Moses in not only his leadership, but also the way that he demonstrates and communicates who Yahweh is to us. We saw how Moses got angry and Yahweh didn't tell him to get angry. And because of that, Moses couldn't bring the people of God into their promised land. And because Moses couldn't bring us couldn't bring them into the promised land. We need, we need someone who's a better leader. We need someone to bring us in. Not only do we need someone who will be a leader, but we also see how the people of Israel being quick to disobey, even when they had promised to be quick to obey, we not only need a better leader, we need better people. And the whole entire point of the law in the Old Testament being given is that we are called to be God's people. He is holy and we are called to be holy. We're called to be perfect, but we can't be perfect apart, apart from God's help. And so the old covenant is a negative example of, of Christ, as in that it, it foreshadows the need for someone to come and fulfill the law. Just 40 days after Moses had gone up to that mountain, when, when he had told the people, don't make for, for yourself an idol, the people had taken God's grace to them, the gold that they were given, and had used that as a, as a license for sinning and made an idol. So we need a greater covenant. Uh, with, with little to no comment, we're going to read through Hebrews 8 uh, and, and then be done. 
Hebrews 8, verses uh, 7 through uh, 12. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will they shall be my people. Now just for a minute, you notice he says the house of Israel, and that doesn't trip us up because of the foundation that we've built in understanding that the church is an extension of the specific purpose that God was doing in calling out a people group unto himself. When this prophet says, uh, I will I will make a covenant with the house of Israel, he's talking about with the people of God. So, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 11, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what Hebrews 8 tells us of your son, that he has obtained a better ministry than Moses for us, that he has enacted this new covenant through his blood and body, that by breaking himself on the cross, he has opened up a way for us to come in and to be your people. And he's made a way for the spirit to go forth and, and to be in and in your people, both in them individually and in their midst. God, we ask you that this new covenant promise, which is fulfilled and being fulfilled, we ask you, Lord, that we would see a greater manifestation of the spirit and power in our life and in our ministries. God, we ask you that you would write your law more clearly on our hearts, that it would not just be a law written on tablets of stone like for Moses, but that it would be always on our hearts, that we would be tenderhearted toward you. God, we ask you that you would open our eyes to, to the language of the Bible, that we would see the meaning of Scripture, and that we would be fascinated with what we see, how you weave your narrative throughout the pages. God, we ask you that you would open our minds, that you would captivate us with beauty in your word, that we would not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.